What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Gifted Performance Podcast with yours truly, the voice of the people, the father of all things, squatting in the host of the podcast, Ryan Zeisloft. I've got my two favorite co-hosts that are still here, still putting up with my nonsense day in, day out. We've got Paulie Reps in Reserve, Surferini, and Cameron Cheeks. Dubbed by our favorite posing coach, Kenny Wallach, and a new face to the podcast, but an OG in the game, Mr. Lyle McDonald. Welcome. Howdy. Thank y'all for having me. Uh, that was a fascinating self-introduction, I must say. I like um, to I like to be very bombastic with it. But if you don't know Lyle, Lyle is the founder, sole proprietor of bodyrecomposition.com. He is uh, he's the head honcho of the yeah. body recomp Facebook group. Over 17,000 members over there keeps him very yeah. busy, keeping yes. all those folks in line. Yeah. Uh, training and nutrition, original from Lyle. When do you think you started? Early 1990s? No, God, no. I was online in 1995. Okay. I was there when all this started. Right. So here's, here's my brief bio since you're going to ask me anyway. So I'm old, <laughs> born in 70, high school in the 80s. Was a totally unathletic, inactive kid who grew up playing video games and eating suburban white food. Got to high school. We had mandatory sports. So at one point I was lifting weights, riding bikes, and swimming. And I kind of liked that. And, you know, there's that old trite thing about, you know, your passion picks you, that yada, yada. But it did. And I was like, this was all I can. And I raced some triathlons. Uh, did all this, and then I so went to UCLA to study exercise physiology, went from wanting to be, I also got into gymnastics briefly, uh, gymnastics coach, turned into physical therapy, and then I started uh, inline skate racing. This would have been like 91, uh, when rollerblading was still a very new sport. And like so many, I was a mediocre athlete. And, you know, I've been reading all the bodybuilding magazines monthly because maybe this is the month. Maybe this is the month where we find the secret. I couldn't, I couldn't risk not reading them. And I mean all of Muscle and Fitness, Flex, Muscle Media International, Iron Man, I remember, or uh, Muscle Mag International. I remember when Muscle Media 2000 started, and that was just like a breath of fresh air. And But I got very, and I read all the magazines, and I wanted to believe, like we all wanted to believe when we were younger. And I would go pick the brain of my exercise phys professor, kind of Eric Sternlicht, who's was been around forever and he'd basically point out why it was basically all bullshit um there was actually even and this is at ucla there was a story weeder once claimed a study was done at ucla on one of their supplements that was a bold-faced lie and got sued by ucla like this anyway so he just so 
he would tell me and I started going down to the research uh, into the the stacks, right? This was, there was no internet. This was 1992 or no real internet. And so I was just pulling papers and I would rather spend my weekends reading research than being out, you know, with human beings. And that's, and then the internet started in 93, really my first, I had AOL with four free hours. That's what they used to give. You had the CD-ROM with four whole free hours. <laughs> and then, you know, my first browser was Mozilla One, which did not show images. It had a little box that just said figure one, image one here, which made personal time really difficult. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and I was there from the beginning, right? I remember Usenet, which was the early, early, early discussion boards, Misc Fitness, Misc Fitness Weights. And I'm still in touch with some of those people 25 years later, I watched that change into mailing lists. And then I saw forums start and that would have been early 2000s. And then I was not a MySpace kid because I was in that. I was 30 something at that point, And it just seemed like a kid's and then Facebook. Um, but anyway, so moving back, I wrote my first book in 1988. No, 98, which was the ketogenic diet. Right. Uh, in the mid 90s. Anabolic Diet with by Mara Di Pasquale and Body Opus were kind of the, and I did Body Opus and was friends with Dan Duchesne and hung out with him for a few days and that was, and then decided to write this book originally with a co-author and then that fell through. Started my website probably about then. I mean, it's been around, I did a different podcast and someone was like, back in the day, whenever I searched for anything, your name came up. And he was like, what magical SEO were you doing? What, what were you doing? And I said, I was the only guy out there. That's, that was it. I was like really, I think one of, if not the first, right? Because I was out of college, so I knew I knew everything, <laughs> right? And bodybuilding was still mired in, you know, bro science. And I was just like, well, here's what the, and I was, I was one of the first people really pushing whatever evidence-based uh, fitness so you can either credit me or blame me for what it's become. And I, depending on what day you ask me, you'll get a different opinion on whether that's a good thing right now, regardless. So yeah, I just, I've been, I've been there since it started. I'm now 25 years. I've been online at like my articles are on, I've got 400. Well, I had 600 till I can side like over 400 articles on my website. That was my first book. And I've written like 14 since then on various topics. I always like to point out, both smugly and annoyingly, right? I wrote about flexible dieting in 2004, and nobody was ready to listen. Now in 2020, and even several, right? You can't. What's that? I said until Eric Helms said it. Yeah, right. And now, now you can't swing a dead cat in a room for whatever reason. You'd swing a dead cat in a room, and that's all people are talking about. And I'm like, dude, I was there 14 years before any of y'all, but. The industry was just like, you can't get contest lean with that. That You must. It was just. And then rapid fat loss and the protein book, which, and you'll, you know, after Dan died, I redid his ultimate diet. And about every 10 years, I write a, a book, a tome that makes me want to die. Keto was first. Protein was exactly 10 years later, 2008. Uh, and then, of course, the women's book, which was published in 2018. So that was the most recent one that made, you know, in between our little shorter books. And I've just been around forever. I, I went from being the new guy. Everybody coming up now is like, yeah, I, I grew up reading your stuff. I'm like, yeah. wow, I'm old.
So that's that. And, and again, it was really my motivation was I wanted to be a better athlete than I was. That was I'd always been obsessed with fat loss because I was kind of a chunky little kid performance because I want to be a better skater. I mean, I loved pushing weights. I was never better than mediocre at it. I competed in powerlifting, loved it. Um, so it's just always been like the science of whatever, nutrition, supplements, weight training, endurance training, human performance. The only thing that I never really delved into was performance enhancing drugs and anabolic. Just a lot of people told me I should have but I'm like, it's an entire new thing to learn. And there's so many people out there who have forgotten more about it than I will be able to learn. It just didn't interest me because it wasn't what I was into. I feel like with how long you've been along, knowing Dan uh, Duchesne or Duquesne, I don't know how you say it, um, that you probably know a little more than you let off. Oh, no. I know enough to be dangerous. Right. I'm sure you've listened to the, the times when I've interviewed Broderick on his own yeah. podcast. Yeah, those are more fantastic. to try to keep him a little bit focused. Like I know I know enough to probably more than sort of the casual person, but certainly I'm not not that deeply into it. Um, so, yeah, like I said, enough to end some of it's just by osmosis and it interests me. Make no mistake. I remember reading the World Anabolic Review back in the 90s, which I'll probably never even heard of. Um, early written by these two German authors about steroids. I've got an original copy of Dan's ultimate steroid handbook that somebody sent me. I've got the USH two. Um, so yeah, I've got Bill Phillips old little anabolic, whatever it was called research or whatever the thing was. So yeah, like it fascinates me. Um, Dan was certainly never dull. <laughs> the three days I spent with him in San Diego was, he was an interesting guy. Let's just put it that way. Um, so yeah, I probably know more than than the general person, but it's never been my area of interest or expertise. Certainly, Lyle, what do you think your favorite project that you ever worked on was? I think the one I'm happiest with in terms of just the overall writing style is probably the Ultimate Two Diet Two Point which I sort of took. So Dan Duchesne had done the Ultimate Diet with Michael Zimpano, and this is we're going back to the '80s now which was apparently an update of Zumpana's original rebound diet, which was probably early 80s, and which I've been looking for a copy of for damn near 35 years now. But it, 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 is, not, it is not findable. No one remembers where it was published, what, what early bodybuilding magazine. I think it's probably my favorite as far as said, the writing style and just the overall content. Um, but, you know, my books, even the ones that, that make me want to die a little inside or actually do and that is my every 10-year re research tome. As, as miserable as they make me, I always come out of them having learned so much. And, and I dare say the women's book, probably more so than all the rest, I was starting from scratch, right? I, I didn't know any of this except, you know, obliquely through relationships. Like, I was starting from square one, learning the menstrual cycle. And then, so, like, it expanded um, my knowledge base. I mean, it, it nearly broke me because um, it's such a complicated topic. I mean, men are simple. Let's just be from top to bottom and inside to out. Men are extremely simple. And everyone's like, when are you going to write the men's book? I'm like, everybody has already written the men's book. There's just <laughs> nothing. There's really nothing more to be said. It's very, very simple. Um, 
but yeah, so I don't, you know, probably Ultimate Diet 2 favorite. Uh, you know, I still got the the super secret project going on 14 years and counting that if I ever get that written, we'll see. Um, so, yeah. It says secret. You can't tell us what it's about. Not without signing an NDA. No, we'll cut it. We've oh. been talking about that since like 2008. And I'm nowhere. It's partially written and I just have whatever. How long? Got, mm-hmm. Go ahead. I've got four or five books partially written. I'm real good at starting projects right now. How long does it usually take you to finish uh, a book on average? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, it, a lot of it depends on how you how you define start to finish. So when I wrote Stubborn Fat Solution, I wrote that very, very quickly. Actually, I'll be honest. I wrote it in 24 hours. Admittedly, I was a little bit manic. Now I was a lot manic. And but it was the culmination of a ten of ten years of research where I've been paying paying attention to literature. Excuse me one second. Sneeze. No. And so it was like, was it twenty? And some of it I was pulling articles off the website that integrated with it. So it's like, is it a ten year project? Is it a? Can you please stop? Enough. Um. You know, the women's book from start to finish, I'd probably say took about three years. Uh, Keto, which is my first book, took about two of research and writing till it was really done. Um, some of the others have gone much, much more quickly. You know, the ones that aren't referenced are the ones that go much more quickly because that is just a nightmare um, and usually represents the end result of a bunch of stuff that's just spinning around in my head that to like, and I, somebody asked me years ago, it's like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, well, I sit around for 10 months and do nothing. I mean, I guess being belligerent on the internet is a career of, cho- of, of sorts. But then I write furiously for two months. And that's sort of de- like people who can sit down and write every day impress the hell out of me. I can't do it. I, when I'm ready to write, I'll write without stopping. Um, I actually genuinely believe that part of the reason it takes me so so much longer to finish projects, back in the day when I did morning cardio, that's when I would write chapters in my head. And once they were written, I could go put them to paper, essentially, without any effort. And now I don't have that anymore. The reference thing uh, always sticks in my head because I think a couple of years ago, I think I asked you why you didn't put references in your book. And I think you said something like people will misinterpret it or like – just kind of say some bullshit about it anyway. And I'm like, hey, if you need a, and you said, if you ever need a reference, just shoot me a, a Facebook message. I'll get it to you. I'm like, damn, you just have these in your fucking head. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I'm to the point where it's like, how do you organize your PDFs? Like, I don't anymore. It's usually, honestly, easier for me to find them again online than to find them on my hard drive. But I've, this is one of those things I've got this appalling memory for that, like, You'll see it in my Facebook group. So I'll be like, wow, you mentioned a study from eight years ago on some topic. And I'm like, 10 seconds later, I can remember what the search terms are. I've also got this weird, the last time I went to a library was 2002. Because by that point, I could get everything in PDF I needed. So all I have to remember is if I read it in physical form, I noticed that my PubMed uh, date limit to 2002 or earlier so that I don't have to look through the last 18 years of research. So like, I can still remember references from stuff I read like in like 1995. It's not, it's not, yeah, right. I'm not as good at it now cause I'm older uh, as, but part of it is also 
and people never believe me on this, like this is where my psychosis comes in. I wanna read it all. Every time I read a paper and I see their references, I wanna read those references. And then I wanna read those. That's part of why when I first wrote my ketogenic diet book, our original publisher said, be thorough. And you don't tell someone like me to be thorough. By the time I was pulling 1945 research papers on, there's an old study on two Arctic explorers who lived on meat and fat for a year. It gets talked about with the ketosis adults all the time. I wanted to read the original paper. And luckily, the medical library I had access to had it in their archives. So I pulled a physical copy and photocopied it. Like, I looked for the paper on boxers and meal frequency for at least a decade. Finally found a copy of it in some weird medical library I was in. And I think I'm actually the only person who's ever read the whole thing past the abstract. Like, there's a psychosis there with me and this stuff that, that gets, but trying to reference stuff in book form, especially the way I do it, is just hellish. Trying to reference individual and keep track of everything and put them in a list. Um, so I do that like once every 10 years and it nearly breaks me. Wow. So hear me out, hear me out. If morning cardio is the secret to getting Lyle to write a lot more and we yeah. all want him to finish the secret project and right. Lyle wants to finish his secret project. Lyle, why don't you just hire us to prep you for a bodybuilding show? Yeah, exactly. Morning cardio's back, everyone wins. Well, and, and that was it, right? Like um, some of my best when I, cause again, when I had physical papers, I would go walk on the treadmill for an hour every morning and great time to read because morning cardio is just boring as hell or when I was riding the bike or whatever. Yeah, I just now I can barely keep up with my references because I got I got people to be mean to on Facebook and, you know, priorities. It's really hard for me to to, to sort of sit down and do my reading anymore. So, yeah, I should get a treadmill or walking something or I can just be lazy and not. Um that's the other, I mean, honestly, that's the problem is, well, there was a point in, let's say 2008 when I was speed skating and I hadn't updated my website in forever. I hadn't sent out a newsletter. I hadn't done any, I just kind of burned out on it all. And my sales were really steady. And I was like, you know what? I should work. I started updating my website, started sending out newsletters. My sales went down. My conclusion was when I do work, I make less money. I'm done. <laughs> and that's like the, the problem is that, I mean, in, I mean, it's not, it's like, I know people like, I wish, wish I were that lucky. My income's all passive. I've been around for 25 freaking years. Every forum, everything, they have a weight loss discussion and people who bought my books talk about my books and I don't have to do any advertising or marketing at all. So it's like, yeah, I could work more and make more money or I could play Arkham Knight on my PlayStation. And I'm perfectly content with that. Um, Cause I've never had to do any marketing. So I've just been on a lot, I've been online forever. So like your, your old books, do you still make income on? Cause I, I would imagine oh, yeah. right now people are just shooting PDFs to everybody like sure. Gmail drives fucking. <laughs> yeah. And they have since, you know, since probably the beginning, um, 
Although I think one of the worst pieces of advice I was ever given by someone in the industry was like, oh, don't, was it, was it don't do eBooks or don't take PayPal? Either way, it was really, really, really bad advice. And as soon as I changed that, my income doubled. It's like, ah, oh, dude. And I get, I get the logic of not having physical books because people, if you do eBooks, people will pirate them. Well, guess what? You can photocopy an entire book because I've done it, right? People, you can, with a, with a, scanner with a page feeder scanner all you do is rip the rip the back cover off and scan it and it's i know it can be done i've done it at the library photocopying entire books before that i couldn't get access to and i was involved in home computing games since the 80s so let's just say that uh piracy is not unknown to me and we'll just leave it at that i don't get indignant about it i truly don't because Trust me, I've done enough of it over the years, whether it was games or other, and we'll just leave that at that, that I, I, don't, I don't get upset about it. I really genuinely don't because I, I come from the opinion, and I've also had people go, oh, yeah, we can, we can totally password protect it. We, like, no, you can't. If Microsoft Word, if Microsoft Windows gets cracked the day after its release, I guarantee you cannot password protect my ebook. Right. So don't tell. And even if you could, because I've gotten some of those, all they do is inconvenience me because once you forget the password, you're out of luck. I've got a couple of ebooks on my computer that I cannot and will never open again. People that are my opinion and my stance on this is generally people that are going to pirate it are going to pirate it. And there's nothing I can do about that. People who are going to buy it are probably going to buy it. There's probably, I'm sure there's a middle position of people that will pirate if it's easy and not if it's not. I just can't be bothered because you can't. You cannot make it secure enough. So I just take it as a compliment. People like my stuff good enough. You know, they like it enough to steal it. And I'm okay with that. And people still buy it. I've had people tell me that when they were young and poor, they pirated it. And when they were making the better living, they bought it. And I'm like, thank you. I appreciate that. And if not, well, like I said, I'm not in a position to get indignant about it. But um, yeah, even keto still sells enough, you know, not as certainly, you know, not as certainly as, as much as it did when I first released it. Because I think then I found the key to marketing a book, make it take two years longer than you tell people. That built up because for two years, I'm like, it'll be done in two weeks. And I swore it would be. I absolutely was convinced, right? It's like when they tell you that your kitchen's only going to take two weeks to remodel for two years or for at least a year. And people were just like, we must have this book. Women's was kind of the same way. I was talking about it for so long that, of course, it was, you know, it crashed my server, um, uh, my website server, <laughs> because I'd just been talking about it for so long and people couldn't wait to get it. So, yeah, I mean, of course, Rapid Fat Loss still sells probably most briskly of the older books just because of the title. Flexible dieting doesn't sell as well as it should. I think if people, when they're like, what's what's the first book you would recommend? I like that one because it's more behaviorally oriented, but it's got the least sexy title because I'm terrible at titling books. Um, but it's not rapid fat loss is a sexy title. Like, ah, yeah. Rapid, oh, hell yeah. Guide to flexible dieting, especially now when everything is flexible dieting. Um, so yeah, no, my book, still... book male enhancement and it'll, it'll fucking, there, there's money to be made. It's actually, that's really funny. You can always tell when it's like, there's a general rule and this goes back to the steroid thing. We tend to be, we tend to become experts in what we're personally interested in. 
right? You want to find a back pain expert? Don't go to ortho, ortho like they orthopedists know, McGill knows, physios know. Find someone with chronic back pain. One of the most educated people about the kidneys that I ever knew was a buddy I knew who'd been on dialysis for seven years. You want to find someone who knows about kidneys? People study what's interesting to them. And you can always tell when experts in this field grow old. This guy, you know who Michael Colgan is? God, I'm so old. He wrote for muscular development way back in the day. Wrote often, And he was, for years, all he wrote about was optimum athletic performance. And all of a sudden, all he wrote about was hair loss and erectile dysfunction. It's like, ah, you turned 50, didn't you? <laughs> There's another individual. In the, what's that? Too much DECA, right. for Too many years of DECA. And, you know, there's, you know, there's another people are like, ah, you know, hair loss. I'm like, I don't care about hair loss because I'm not losing my hair. You want to find a hair loss expert in this industry? I can think of one because he's been going bald since he was in his 20s. He's he's the go to guy. Um, so, yeah, like we tend to sort of just like study what what interests us by and large. I don't know why I'm talking about this. Um Anyway, moving on. So, so yeah, that's just, that's me in far too long of an introduction. I got involved in sports when I was 15. It's all I wanted to do. I retired briefly three or four years. I was real burnt out on it. And that happened when I retired from athletics. When I stopped being an athlete in 2012, because I'd pursued that since I was about 16, I didn't care anymore. I didn't read a paper for several years just because I'm like, well, I mean, it's true. Most of us, they talk about, what is it? Most psychiatrists and psychologists are crazy. They're trying to fix themselves. Most dietitians were overweight. They're trying to fix themselves. I was trying to fix myself, and I happened to turn it into a very lucrative career by being on the internet at the right time, and I truly was. I was just the only guy for a decade. I don't think Eric Helm showed up till mid-2000s. And he even yeah. told me, he's like, I was reading your books when I was, you know, in, in, in college. And, you know, that's, and then they're the new generation. And there's another one, you know, I came up with Pat Arnold, uh, if you know him, Bill Robert, you probably don't know, Bruce Neller, Duchesne, who, when he first got on the internet, when he got out of, let, let out of jail the last time, um, you know, those are the guys I sort of came up. And I think, by and large, I'm the only one that's left. Um most of them seem to have kind of gone gone elsewhere, and I'm still hanging on 25 years later. I think Patrick Arnold's still doing, if you're talking about the same one, some chemistry stuff with supplements yeah. companies, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he got he got embroiled in the whole Balco scandal with the cream and the clear. And um, when I remember, uh, Victor Conte was online in the same news group. He and I tied it up early, early, early on, because I knew he was full of shit. And... Um, and then, yeah, he got popped and Pat Arnold got popped and I know went to jail for a little while. And I'm sure he's still around, but I don't think he has quite. Uh, Bill Roberts wrote he went to T-Nation. He was just another steroid guy. And I think Neller went and got into a more mainstream career. Um, so anyway. All right. What do you guys think? That's me. Some female, you want to talk about yeah. some female fat loss? Yeah. All right, let's do it. All right, so that was going to be our big discussion today. Like Lyle said, male fat loss, it's been covered. That dead horse is probably being beaten as we're speaking at this yeah. very moment. 
So let's talk about a little bit about kind of the female side of things. The first question I had for Lyle was, so let's take untrained men and women. So never trained before talking about relative rate of muscle gain. So let's just say relative to their starting point, 90 kilo male, 18 ish percent body fat, 60 kilo female, 28 ish percent body fat, right? Relatively speaking, Who's going to be gaining muscle at a faster rate, or it, will it be about the same? That's what's really interesting. It, in untrained, it is, in relative terms, like percentage, really, really, really similar. Now, obviously, that means in absolute terms, it is significantly less in women, right? If you, you know, if you look at some of, the, you know, some of those early untrained studies over six months, you know, a woman might gain three to four pounds of muscle, actual muscle, uh, and a guy will probably gain about double that. And a lot of that just reflects those differences in starting points, um, you know, and that that then raises some other end. Well, and also you see the same thing in strength gains by and large in the sense that relative strength gains tend to be very similar. Women actually often make slightly better relative upper body gains, which probably reflects more coming from a less trained status. And and even like, but but if they're both untrained, they're both untrained, right? And that's true. But if you just look at like lifestyle. many of the day, just daily activities, daily lifestyle, you know, traditionally men just frequently do more things with their upper body, probably because one thing you do see is there's a difference in muscular distribution in women and men. Men tend to be a little bit more even upper body and lower body. Women are definitely more lower body dominant in terms of their muscle mass. And you see that when you start looking at relative strength levels. In lower body women, 85 to 90% of men's strength levels. For upper body, it's more like 65 to 75%. It's, it's much, much, much less. And that is just simply due to not having as much upper body muscle mass to, to begin with. Um, so yeah, women may make a little bit, I mean, we're talking percentage points. It's not like it's double uh, in terms of relative strength gains percentage wise for upper body. Um, what is also interesting, and I think this goes to your next question, a paper literally came out like four days ago, right? Because the question then becomes, okay, well, this is an untrained. We know there's these different proportions of muscle mass. Women have whatever, on average, about 75% of the muscle mass of men in their upper body, 90-ish percent on average in their lower body. Is this genetic, biological? Is it training? Right. And certainly when you look at a lot of the older studies, I do think you have to, especially starting to look at that, even in athletes, men have all, or boys have always done weight training from a young age. It was just part of our, and sports, right? I grew up in the seventies, all boys did sports and women's sports just wasn't, you know, until title 12 and which is the late seventies, just wasn't there. Boys, I had weight training in high school in 16, seven, when I was 16, 17 years old. Like, that's just what teenage boys do. And it was so untraditional and almost just like looked down upon. And it was just so, it, it was so antithetical. Women just were not accepted in the weight room. They were told not to go in the weight room. So I think when you start looking at a lot of those like 80s studies and even in the early 90s, you are dealing with overlap of the biology with the socio-cultural aspect. However, the study that just came out by Takashi Abe, who does all this work on this stuff, looked at, he's looked at like maximum muscle mass in male and female athletes 
and we're talking outliers. We're talking monsters, and it's occasionally these papers are thrown at me about, oh no, the fat-free mass index cutoff is nonsense, and he's looking at elite elite athletes, world championship level athletes who say they're not taking steroids. Oh, I believe you. Oh, I believe that that these four professional NFL football players that you studied were not taking. Oh, I believe you. And that's why they had, you know, 260 pounds of muscle mass. Oh, I believe you that they're natural. Sure. And they, but they've identified some outliers and it's like the biggest male athlete is, you know, a hundred and well, Ray Williams is like 160 kilos. The dude's just a monster, you know, originally in sumo wrestlers, it was like 230 pounds. And the biggest woman was like 80 kilos of actual muscle mass. I mean, that's gigantic. Some of it's a height thing. I find it interesting because if you look at like the last Mrs. Female, the last female Olympia, she came in at like 135 pounds of muscle, right? She's competing at 150 and 10% body fat. Like, okay, so you're telling me that a sport that is known for vast steroid abuse can't generate women, and yet you've identified this theme, probably a shot putter or a power athlete. Anyway, and that ratio stays about the same. Like, if you look at untrained, the ratio of total muscle mass is whatever, 80 to 8. And, but even in elite athletes, it seems to be the same. And in a follow-up paper he did, they looked at upper body and lower body muscle mass. In highly elite athletes that were doing weight training that presumably have been, you know, in 2020, the differences in access, accessibility of women to sport doesn't, is, 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 is essentially gone, Right. If we looked at 1950, the differences would be like 50%. Women were not allowed into sport, and the ones that were weren't given a lot of support. That's no longer the case. And they found that it was about the same. The female, the biggest female athletes had about 70% of the upper body muscle of the men and about 90. So it seems like the relative potential stays pretty similar. And so that suggests the biology to it. That there is simply, and whether that's being determined by absolute testosterone levels, which is probably a big part of it, because we know that women with even above average testosterone levels or even high average do carry more muscle mass. Like there's been a lot of downplay of, oh no, testosterone's not important to women. And there's a lot of politics in that that we're not getting into. Um, but even within the normal range, there's a difference. When you look at women polycystic ovary syndrome, they have double the testosterone levels. They are found at a much higher percentage in elite sport because they have an athletic advantage. So, you know, those, those absolute differences, women 30 to 90 nanograms per deciliter, men 300 to 1100, you know, it's 10 to 30 fold difference. But there's, there is a biology to it where there is simply a similar relative cap, but obviously, I mean, and some people listening to this would go, but you can find female athletes that are bigger than male athletes. Oh, sure. If you're comparing highly trained to untrained, and even then, not always. I mean, there's people in my group have pointed out like, yeah, you can take a highly trained female and you can bring in an untrained guy and he'll still probably outbench her. And there's not always, but we're comparing like to like. We're comparing the, the elitist of the elite. Same thing with performance. If you look at the differential in performance, it's about 10% between women and men. And it cuts across almost all sports, 
It's a little bit lower for like swimming. It's a little bit higher in very upper body dominant sports, like kayaking. Women are like 25% behind men. Why? Because it's an upper body dominant sport. And the, different, the ratio is most lower body sports, about 10%. But that stayed stable since like 85. I have a question. <clears throat> have any of these studies <clears throat> done like muscle biopsy and looked at like components of muscle to see like, you know, men maybe have more sarcoplasmic, yeah. uh, 18 glycogen, whatever fucking myofibrillar, whatever. To, to a degree. And the only real. Well, so one of the big ones is it looks like women have, store a little more intramuscular oh. fat. It's like 5% difference. So like right there, we're looking within a given volume of muscle, there's going to be a little bit less actual skeletal muscle tissue. Um, there's a long held belief that there is a, that women have more f slow twitch fibers than men. And that is, that... <laughs> can you please stop? Right. My dog, can you please stop? And, um, that, that, that is often true on average, but there is just a huge variability. It's like what you do see is women are more likely to have the highest percentage of type 1 fibers. So like compare male and females and it's like, okay, men range from 25 to 65% or whatever it is. Women range from like 25 to 85%. So you're more likely to find women with extreme distributions. But... And there's, you know, a recent study came out and they were like, oh, in elite female Olympic lifters, they had 5% more fast twitch fibers than the men, at least in the lower body. Well, is that a transitionary thing? Is it because their training caused them? Probably not. Who are the women or the men that are going to be the elitist Olympic lifters? The ones with a high proportion of fast twitch muscle fibers, right? And that's always very difficult to, to separate out. It's like, of course, you don't get to the top of that sport. You don't get to the top of running without probably being born with a physiology that is going to make you good at it. Um, so, yeah, that I haven't seen anything about sarcoplasm. And I mean, they're only really starting to get deeply into that since that recent paper, which is going to be fascinating to see what falls out of that with all the volume arguments that are going on. Cause it's like, yeah, I bet the high volume we're going to find just like the bros said that high volume pump training it's fluid. Cause even the one study with so much controversy, it's like, yeah, somehow the highest volume supposedly generated more growth, but no difference in strength gains. No, sorry. 60% the entire study and just kept well, sets. So so that was the one that Israel was involved in. So they did 60% for a 10 rep mat for 10 reps, right? They had four reps in reserve. So basically they could have done 14 to failure, right? Which, okay. But 60%, isn't that like a 20 RM? Well, I think it sort of depends on, depends the, on the individual. Yeah, it really does. But what basically they did sets of 10 with four reps in reserve. That's what they reported. But to make it even a dumber workout, so they did like squat, RDL, bench, row, or pull down or something. They didn't do all the sets in a row. They, they did like a circuit. Oh. So there were 10 minutes between every, let's face it, that's a warm-up set. So wait, is so, checked off on that? Oh, that's the yeah, he loves that stuff. That's his whole thing is maximum recoverable volume, even though in the last two years he's backed way off of that. And... His most recent thing in a recent paper, he was like, eh, pick a pick a range of 10 to 20 sets per week. God, that sounds so familiar. It's, it's almost far, like I said that two years ago. It's a far cry ago. from the 30 to 40 
that we heard from a couple yes. years ago. Yes, or even in one of his early articles where he said you needed 36 sets of traps a week. Really? And 36 Oof. sets of abs. Really? But, yeah, so they were doing basically what to me amounts to a warm-up set every 10 minutes. You could do that all day till you got bored because they never they never reported less than four reps in reserve throughout the entire – there was no cumulative fatigue. And they're like, okay, well, A – at the 20 set mark, there was really no significant further growth. What growth there was was fluid. And when they went back and analyzed it, they were like, oh, yeah, this was not really muscle fiber growth. This was sarcoplasm. Right, because you're not stressing the actual muscle fibers. You you're can't stressed. have created that study and have lifted. Like, I wonder if that was even close to foreign reserve. Well, that's what they were reporting, but people are so terrible at that. You would think it'd be around like 65 to 68%. Should be. And and even the studies on reps and reserve, A, it takes skill to use it, right? And I've, I've talked about this in my group. People are like, I see these studies and are like, oh, yeah, we did sets of 10 to failure on 60 seconds. I'm like, no, you didn't. Because I will bring you into the gym. And if I take you to set of failure on squats, you are not getting off the floor for three minutes. Like, do not lie or send me the video. Now, they're, they're like form failure. Most people don't have the first clue where true limit failure is because they've never gone there. They stop when it gets hard. And the studies, even on reps and reserves, show that, A, it gets better as you get more trained, but, B, the further you are away from failure, the less accurate it is. No, but could you, nobody, if you go do a set, could you tell when you're five reps away? No. Can you tell when you're two reps away? Sure, because the bar speed slows so much, right? You do a set of 10, like a true... Set of 10 to failure. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten is like barely gets through the sticking point. Like four, four from failure, nobody can accurately report that. Um, so yeah, so all these, I think we're gonna find that going back to the sarcoplasmic thing. Yeah, that the super high volume studies. That's all there, which is fine if you just want to be bigger, I guess, or be pumped up or or whatever. I guess that's fine. Or, you know, you could train heavy and actually, you know, it, it, it will. This will turn out that the bros were right, that pump training builds fluid volume and intense training builds density or quality or whatever it is. And maybe for bodybuilder, do both. But, you know, it's even there was one really interesting paper that was looking they, they measured muscle thickness like every day and they did their training for eight weeks and then a week later one week of no training all the growth was gone that's fluid it has to be you don't lose muscle yeah. you don't lose actual contractile muscle fibers that quickly it's fluid it like, has to be fluid it's like when somebody takes a deload and is asking me about oh. Feel so small and flat. Why am I down three pounds? Like you haven't been training for a week, man. Yeah, it's glycogen and water, and yeah. um, it's that same thing when you start like a contest prep diet. And the other is like first two weeks, you swear you get fatter and you look worse. Look worse, yeah. It's, yes, it's you look worse, you're, but it does. You're just like, oh my god, I look stringy and flat, and you lose a bunch of glycogen. Same reason that when you come out of a diet, like for the first two weeks, man, <clears throat> you look better because your muscles fill out and it stretches every and you look a little bit leaner. And then, then the fat gain starts once you get beyond that. And I know we're going to talk about that towards the end. Um, so yeah, but it is, these are all major fluid shifts and they're measuring it. 
they're like, they're, they're like, oh no, two to three days is enough. I'm like, no, we need the data on that. We need to know if you're doing 15 sets and you measure 48 hours later, you're probably still a little pumped up. That's what bodybuilders do it. And yeah, there's, that's what we're going to find is that a, these super high volume studies are a number one, it's just fluid because it, you can't, you can't stress the contractile components, the actual muscle fibers. Um, B, when you start to look at it, like the low volume, the studies that support a moderate volume, right? 10 to 20, 12 to 16 sets, invariably use two to three minute rest intervals. They go heavy. And the ones that don't are using these 60 second rest intervals. There's another one, a study, Brigado and all. Tell me if you think this workout's possible. This is in the same workout. Eight by 10 rep max to form failure in the squat on six, <laughs> on, in the squat on 60 seconds. By the second set, you're getting what? Three reps before you're falling apart if you're lucky. If Take I went to that study and they're like, all right, next set, I'd be like, no. I'd just be no. catching cramps and be laying in the floor. And then rest two minutes, eight by 10 RM on 60 seconds in the leg press. There's no way. And I, two years ago, I said, if you think I'm wrong, send me the video. Send me an uncut start to finish video of that workout. And I will send you a free book and apologize on my website and say I was wrong. I've yet to get the video because everybody knows I'm right. The workout cannot be completed. Research, uh, resistance training, research study methods just frustrate me to no end because it's like, okay, we did four sets of 10 with a 10 RM. I'm like, you can't do that. Yeah, like, <laughs> you missed the RM part. Right. And that's the problem is if you're not well trained, you don't stop at failure. You stop when it gets too hard. And that's just, and it's true of most sports that, you know, most people quit when it gets uncomfortable. And because I, I put up a bunch of videos, I, I did a lot of low volume, super high. I mean, we're talking to isometric push into it for 10 seconds failure. I have squatted to failure deliberately. And I defy 99% of trainees to squat to true failure. Now, do things go awry on low rep sets every once in a while? Sure, people miss singles, but... I defy most people to buy, and here's how I'm defining squatting to failure, where you descend, attempt to, to come up, and either get pinned out of the hole, get halfway up, have to lower the bar, and dump it onto safeties. Okay, that is squatting to failure. And if you have never done that, you don't have any clue how close to failure you are. Because if I bring you into my gym, and I, at one point before we got into Coronaville, I was about to issue an old school MFW challenge to some of these people and go, I'll fly you to Austin. And if you can survive the workout that I get to supervise, I'll pay you. Can't do it now because I guarantee you, even if I put you on a leg press, there's another research group that did take videos and they took a guy on the leg press to true can't make the rep failure. And that dude crawled onto the floor and collapsed. Do not tell me you're doing this eight time on 60 seconds because you can't even believe it's possible. I don't believe that any reason, and it is, and I mean, it's better now. The resistance training researchers have typically, supposedly are in the gym 
And it's like, do not tell me you think this workout is possible unless you, like most, have no clue where failure lives. Well, like, so for my thesis, I did an RIR. I'm still writing it. It's taken me forever to write. But, like, I had them take every single set to failure on bench press with 80%. And every set, most of the participants dropped, like, three or four reps until until they only had about three reps. And then they could kind of recover enough to repeat a few reps on their last couple sets. But, um, yeah, their reps quickly dropped from anywhere from 8 to 12 to, by their second set, like, four or five reps like oh, yeah. reps. that's that's you know <laughs> so unless you're dropping the weight by 20 I, mean, I just that's that was i did a little short ranty video and i was like these workouts need to be videoed right we are in the era of social media and video cameras if you want to show me that this workout was actually done as described in the paper let's put a video up on instagram it's not that hard and all i've seen is excuses from the because I, I read a paper and it was in women and they were looking, I think, at low load training and high load, and they tested their 1RM, which is always questionable, right? If you're not trained, I love it when they're like, we took untrained individuals and tested their one rep max. Oh, sure you did. Uh, <laughs> oh, I believe you, because that is going to be such a valid measure. And then they had them lift at like, like 60% of max or something. And okay, so somehow some of the, no, at 80%, and like somehow some of the women, something like that, only got one rep at 80% of their one rep max. Would you like to explain that to me? Dude. Or I'll t- or then, like, but then at 30%, one woman, they reported 450 repetitions on the last day. <laughs> That's like 17 and a half minutes. Show me the video of what was being Jeez. done. I get it that women have more endurance than men at lower intensities, 450 repetitions. Okay, if you say so. Man, you just struck How so many, many effective words. reps. Is that <laughs> two at the very end? Um, you just struck a nerve with me too in terms of uh, classifying participants. I think it was the barbell, one of the barbell host studies or whatever that said like trained females, and then you look at their one RMs and it's like, like a ninety-two pound. Like, <laughs> well, and there's without getting deep into the woods, there's a lot of it. Looks like the barbalho data is problematic at best. They just, the paper just came out. They just did the big old analysis. And as much as I hate it to be the case, I think they're probably right. There were always, like I report on a lot of those papers and I tried to read through the math paper that they wrote. Basically they were just like, the data in the aggregate is improbable. And I think they're probably not wrong. I want them like I want them to be, but I don't think they are. I think when you do ten studies and and the re, and the numbers are that damn near identical, and some of it raises some questions, I don't think they're going to turn out to be wrong. And I'll be the first one to go. Hey, I've I'll, I've already de- they already attracted one paper, and I published that on my site and said, but without make I just said, hey, this has been retracted. I removed the article because that's the intellectually honest thing to do. I'm not just going to make it disappear and pretend I didn't report on it. I'm going to say, this was officially retracted. This needs to be on my web. And if the others end up being retracted, I will be the first person to go, hey, it sucks. And any, But any lab that fakes research should be held to accountable. They should lose. They should never be able to publish again. So, yeah, but you do. You see that. And they're like, have been training for three years, even in, in Brad's original volume study. You look at their strength levels and it's like, oh, their bench was 1.2 times body weight and they've been training for four years. Like they haven't been training very well, clearly, 
or they don't know how to express a one RM. Because if you look at the typical strength charts, I'm like, <laughs> it's decently intermediate. Like it, it, it's like advanced novice. It's like not, and their squat was like whatever, one and a half times body weight. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I mean, you can train for years. And as the British like to put it, you can faff about the entire time, watch people in my gym do it constantly. And, you know, they've trained for a decade and they're still like, okay, you're still only benching 185. Like, all right, whatever. Um, so, yeah, so, so that is a training status. And again, you have to be skilled to express a true one repetition maximum. There was one paper, I think it was one of the Barbalho papers, and again, those might be all thrown out. They were like, oh, we tested 10 RM. Well, that makes way more sense. If you're gonna try, if you're gonna study bodybuilding types, don't trust a, don't test a max single. They don't know how to do it. That takes practice. If you're testing power lifters do it, and it might be a valid measure. Because what happens, right, is we go, okay, here's the one RM. It's probably 20% below what it really is. Well, we said it at 80% of their 1RM. Well, I got news for you. That's now 60% of their maximum. Automatically, any, anything you're going to throw out is completely inaccurate. But what I was going to also just finally, and we'll get back to the actual topic of our, our podcast, when you start to aggregate the studies, you look at the six or seven that found that moderate volumes gave the optimal growth and higher were no better. They tend to be high, higher quality training, truly heavier with long enough rest intervals to be quality training. And when you look at the higher volume studies, it's this 8 to 12 RM on 90 seconds. No, it's 8 by 10 RM on 60 seconds. No, it's 10 sets at 60% with a 10-minute rest interval. It's all super low-quality training. And what I believe is that when you are training like that, you and this gets the effective rep thing that Cameron brought up, that you have to do that many more sets to compensate for how low quality it is. And a paper just came out supporting that idea. And this is sort of complex. So they trained one leg and the other leg and they did, oh God, what, what was it? They did like three sets to failure and then they matched the, uh, the workload, but it was not to failure. And what they basically found is that if you did three sets here to get the same growth, you had to do four and a half sets when it was submaximal. Well, there you go. There's your answer. If you're going to train like that, you probably have to do at least 50, you know, one and a half times as many sets. And that to me starts to build a model that includes all the papers. If you do eight sets to true limit with two minutes and you want to train lighter with a shorter rest interval where you're only getting two effective reps per set instead of four, well, now you got to do 16 sets. Boom. There's now no contradiction. But you have, but that doesn't mean that, oh, 15 sets per workout is what everyone should do. It's like, no, within the context of training like that. And again, you look at the old pros, Arnold, and they trained hard. I mean, they were probably within, but they didn't really train to limit failure. You know, one to two reps of failure, they pumped it up. A lot of their sets were warm-ups. So to me, that sort of brings it all together as far as, because any model, you can't just go, I don't like those papers, throw them out. It's like, yeah, we need to sort of find some, and I think that's that's the conclusion. Anyway, back to your question. Potential absolute muscle gain for women over a career of training, based on what we talked about for an hour. My general rule for men, if you're at the top end of your genetics, maybe 40 to 45 pounds of muscle over a career. And that's that's going to be maximal. 
not all men will get that. Like, I would say that, you know, you look at, and which, of course, that gets into, like, all right, if you've got a guy that's 220 on stage, which is rare to be 220, natural, 220 on stage in shape, that's rare. I guarantee you he weighed 180 in high school. Um, if you ever want, what's his name, Nima Inyang? There was a bo- big, big, big bodybuilder. Um Anima Inya, something like that. I'm sorry, I'm going to get his name wrong. And I did it. We talked about that on a different podcast. I mean, the guy's huge. Like, he's bigger than any natural bodybuilder you've ever seen. But you look at pictures when he was 14, he was bigger than most naturals now, right? Guys that start big end big. The guys who were like 100, buck 40 in high school, they might get to 180, 185 at a reasonable body fat percentage. And they'll compete if they compete in bodybuilding. They'll compete at 165. (laughs) That's still whenever people are like, oh, you'll see exceptions to this 25, this fat-free mass index. Yeah, you will. But there's a reason that the middleweights is still the most contested class. You do not see many guys at 210 in competition shape. Go to a bodybuilding contest and you will see 30 guys in the 165s. Our nutrition is supposedly better than ever. We've got all these new training methods. Natural still can't get past 75 kilos in shape. And, and that's uh, all the elite ones that didn't go off to play high-level collegiate sports because they already had talent. There, yes, and there's there's that too. There's always been that counter-argument that certainly the, the, the superior athletes generally don't go into bodybuilding anymore than they go into Olympic lifting. They go into sports where they can make money. So that's absolutely, I, I agree. But then again, you see these papers are like, yeah, we had eight NFL athletes who said they weren't on steroids. Oh, dude, yeah. steroids have been in the sport since the 70s, right? They used to pour Diana Ball on cereal, Breakfast of Champions. Of course, they can't say they're on steroids, but don't don't even pretend you yeah. can believe this. Don't tell me that a world class shot putter is gonna be clean. You can't be in the modern era. But anyway, so for women, I would I generally just cut those values in half. Again, at the very high end, right? You're looking at a woman might gain, you know, 20 pounds of muscle over if she, and and realize that when I throw these numbers out, we are not talking about general population. We are talking about someone that basically dedicates their life to getting every gram of muscle they're going to get, right? Like I said, take the average untrained woman, train her for six months. She might gain three to four pounds of muscle right? Which is about half of what I'd expect a man to get. She continues training intensely for a year. She might get, she might double that. So now she's at eight, 10 pounds, maybe 10 if she's lucky. Okay. The next year she's going to get about half again, right? We're at 15. Then it's going to take two more years to get the final, you know, microscopic amount. And that's at the high end. Most women probably won't even get that. And there's an article actually on my website, and I think it's it's just I've got one that talks about genetic potential in men, and then I've got another one that's on genetic that's just excerpted from the women's book. And a lot of this data they determine muscle mass relative to height, so they're like, oh, you can carry X pounds per inch or X kilograms per centimeter if uh, if you're a communist. And um, oh wait, I'm sorry, if you live in a non-metric country, I shouldn't have said that out loud. And 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 I and what I identified was like three different values, 
right? And I'm like, okay, this, here's where they measured elite female bodybuilders. Here's like general, and, and I'm like, okay. And it, it didn't go that high, right? If you look at most females training, right, who might be whatever, say 120, 125 pounds at a reasonable 22% body fat, it's like 95 to 100 pounds of muscle, maybe a little bit higher, maybe a little bit lower, you know, if they're lucky, you know, that's a, maybe that's like maybe five foot five, something in that range. And that's, yeah. And that's, but again, to get that last five pounds is going to take years. You know, I still see guys and this is an Instagram and this is a social media thing. I'm like, yeah, I've been training for a decade and I'm doing this new thing where it's high frequency and whatever, whatever. And really like my results. I'm like, really show me the numbers. Did you gain the last quarter kilo you're going to get you gain the last half pound you're going to get this year right at the advanced level you've got guys grinding for a year to get half a pound if they're lucky you know and and, and the counter argument says well i'm 10 years i compete at a heavier weight right on stage i'm i'm right you learned how to diet that's the difference you learned how to not hemorrhage muscle mass on the way down but you're not any bigger in the off season than you were. And you're not going, because at four, maybe five years, you've hit your limit. And there's only one way to go past it. And it's not full body five days a week. <laughs> it's <laughs> something else five days a week. But go ahead. Someone else who talks about that, and I give him credit for talking about it, is Jeff Alberts. He talked about that. He talks about that a lot on his Instagram about how okay. he hasn't really learned how to do anything new in training his training looks the same now that it did 15 years ago but now he actually knows how to diet without losing 70 yeah. percent of what he gained in the off season yeah and and you know it's interesting they used to you still hear that claim made and it's like oh as bodybuilders get older they have better muscle quality whatever that's supposed sure. to mean it's one of those yeah. real vague and i don't know if it's you know some muscle density or whatever it is but it's like i think you're just learning to diet more effectively to not hemorrhage the 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 25 muscle mass that you get when you do it badly um you know and and that whatever it could be recognizing that the one gram per pound is not even enough for naturals you know using refeeds and diet breaks that man i just can't do y'all remember who first really talked about that formally the i think full it was lane break. norton yeah i think it was lane norton <laughs> and um i mean make no mistake right duchene was doing that long before me he's like 10 week diet four weeks on two weeks at maintenance try to raise well like, he didn't know really why it worked but he and i just kind of put it in formal terms and now that's like all you read about and oh and they finally doing studies on it and i'm like i wish these researchers would just read my damn book from 16 years ago they're like oh we tried taking a week off every four to six weeks and we we limited the the reduction metabolic rate like really Somebody really wow um but seen the same thing if y'all have read my little bromocryptine booklet one of the weirdest books i ever i ever read yep. wrote, wrote rather and yeah that was god another 15 years ago and it was like wait what and i'm like no no trust me on this and now i'm reading papers on anti-obesity treatment they're like yeah we should try dopamine agonists i'm like oh really how <laughs> how 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 very um so anyway so yeah like so relative rates relative muscle gain seems to be the same but when you start looking at the differences in starting point 
then you end up at about the same proportion. And again, I think women will find generally that their upper body muscle mass, it's just never as developed by and large. And you see this in sport. Um, go to a powerlifting meet. Women frequently have great squats, pretty good deadlift. And then the bench is kind of a tragedy. And I'm not saying that to be critical. This is simply women don't have the upper body muscle mass. Even 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 deadlifts can be a problem because the upper back still has to be able, you know, you see much more rounded upper backs in female powerlifting. I mean, outside of doing it deliberately, their legs can move more than their upper back can maintain an arch on. And that's perfectly fine. Squats, not as bad. Certainly you see this in female Olympic lifting, because at the end of the day, you got to hold weight overhead. What their legs can move is foreign proportion of what they can often shoulder. What I found interesting when the Chinese really burst on the scene, the Chinese female Olympic lifters are jacked, right? Their upper bodies are just enormous. And whereas the, the women, the other countries, the women overhead were just wobbly. And I mean, Chinese lift, female lifters are just like, forward now. Can I put the bar down, please? And supposedly they do proportionally more upper body work for that, that reason. So at the end of the day, you'll, I mean, women will often have just, you know, fantastic legs comparatively, but their upper body may lag behind. But I do think on average at the very top end, men might gain 40 to 45 pounds and most won't put in the time to gain all of it. And women 20, they're lucky. 15 is probably realistic. And in this chart I gave, what I said was, okay, look, if you've been training several years intensely and you're only in row one or column one, you, if you're at the high end of column one, you might make it to the low end of column two, but you will never make it to column, right? If you're not there after three or four years of training, you're never going to make it. And I was the same thing for a guy because guys, there is no genetic limit. I can get as big as I want. No, you can't. If, you're, if you've been training intensely for four years and you're 180 at 12%, you will never be on stage at 195 naturally, period. Ah, you don't know my work ethic. I don't have to know your work ethic. <laughs> this has nothing to do with your work ethic. This has to do with sheer biology and sheer genetics that unless you artificially increase your testosterone to support that muscle mass, you're never, ever, ever going to get there, period. So. I would sort of put the apps in that realm. Unless you have, unless you have somewhere around six hundred milligrams of work ethic that you can increase, at you least get in there, buddy. It ain't happening. And then that's only initially, right? You're going to need to. Uh, one of the, the best straw man arguments I wrote my article about. You know, steroids build muscle without training, actually, as well as training at least. And that six hundred milligram study, which is a lot, well, it's a lot by medical standards. It's natural by current. Powerlifter standards. Powerlifters consider anything less than a gram a week to be natural. It's no joke. A gram a week doesn't even count. And I wrote that, and one of the, the luminaries in this field said, well, you won't keep growing on that. Well, I never said you would, <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I didn't. And another guy that got really mad was like, well, won't make you a bodybuilder. I never said it would. I didn't say it would give you symmetry or even development. I didn't say it would get you contest ready. I said what I said. And I mean, that, that put on, was it 20 pounds of lean body mass in 20 weeks? And some of it was water, make no mistake. They did back the measurement. Their strength went up. Their muscle fiber went up. They did a similar study in women, actually. They gave them a testosterone cream. 
that took them to like the high normal range. And some women went to like low men's range and they saw increase in strength, muscle mass, increased type two muscle fiber area. Um, and yeah, testosterone is awesome. But if you're 185 after four years, that is the only way you're ever getting bigger. Um, which actually takes me back to a previous question that I do want to, the fiber type thing. So I said, on average, women may have a little bit lower fiber types, but individually you can't tell. However, an extremely, extremely regular finding, women have a, often have a larger type one slow twitch muscle fiber area than men and a much sl smaller type two fiber area, right? So they may not have percentage less fibers, but the size is very, so again, is it biology? Is it activity? Now, it's probably activity. Because when you look at untrained, you see that very reliably. When you start looking at athletes, a lot of that disappears. But here's where it gets really interesting to me, and maybe we can theorize about this. They did a study on, on oil. there's like an 80s study. They used to study bodybuilders all the time, and then they kind of stopped. Now they're starting again, and Alway did a lot of this fiber type research, looked at elite male and female bodybuilders. What they found was the males, much their type 2 fibers were much larger than their type 1. Much. But the women, they were equal. What that tells me is that the women started with smaller type 2, which is very regular finding, and just caught up to where it was even. But then that raises the question, okay, are they training improperly? Are they training properly? Like, is there, is there a way... I mean, does that mean that the men have more potential for type 1 fiber growth with low load train or whatever it is? And some research says maybe, and some says probably not, and don't know yet. And it's like, okay, does that mean, is there a way we could get women's type fast twitch fibers to be bigger than their type 1, as you see in men? Or is it simply that over their three or four years of training, they just catch up so that it's even? It's like I said, men, men start here and just get bigger. Women start here and just catch up. Well, I guess that's really interesting because if you just look at the habits of many females when they train, a lot of times lighter loads go for the burn, higher wrap. Yes. Um, and, and presumably, and again, this was bodybuilding in the 80s, and they might were probably still training a little bit pump stuff, but that was also when steroids really came into the sport. Um, you know, that was when I was watching something, oh, a documentary, and, you know, Bev Francis really changed the game. Right. If you go get really back in the history of it, early female bodybuilding is not even as muscular as bikini is now. Right. It was just yeah. like fit. It's what bikini was four or five years ago, where it was just like generally fit women. Rachel McLish was getting a little bit muscular, a little bit more than Bev Francis came out of powerlifting and she was just gigantic, comparatively speaking. And when they gave her the Olympia or the Miss Universe, whichever it was, boom, suddenly female bodybuilding was in a uh just a a battle you know the women got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger um and even Corey Everson was very muscular for the day like but Bev I mean because she came out of that power so yeah it's it's hard to tell what's what's biological what's behavioral you know when they do these studies and actually start to, to push women you often they've done a lot of fiber type stuff and you see these changes um but certainly the training component you know, I've, I've never met a dude that didn't want to go heavy all the time, like ever. Sure, they're out there, but by and large, usually too heavy. Whereas traditionally with women, 
it was a fight. It's changing. Like, actually, it, it is. I've seen, because, again, I've watched it. For 25 years, I have watched the fitness space and the gym space. The attitudes change. And I'd say in the last five or even 10 years, the mentality or the acceptance of women lifting heavily has changed drastically. And I think it's one of the things that as much damage as Instagram nonsense causes, women have also seen that, okay, there are women out there just putting, just moving heavyweights. We've got a few women deadlifting near 600 and retaining, and I hate to use this term, and I'm going to qualify it a million times because I know about the pol- retaining their femininity. Now, I'm not meaning that, and I don't want people to jump down my throat, realize that that's a definition that I don't get an opinion on. Hopefully listeners know what I mean by that, the very traditional definition, and it, or that even that it doesn't matter. Like I've noticed an explosion in female powerlifting where it's about just how much you lift. That's all anybody cares about. And once women get into that, man, they just like, really, I don't have to worry about any of that, that ancillary BS. This is the sport I was born for. And it's awesome. Like the, so I, I've really seen a big change. And it would be interesting to redo some of those earlier studies to see if there is a change now, now that the sociocultural uh, environment has changed so much, whereas the women they would, might be studying are training very differently, are coming from an environment where they did play sports from a very early age. Um, because here is you want to get super speculative. Someone asked me years ago, or someone observed, they worked at a gym where there were a lot of guys that grew up on the farm. They're out in Oregon. And these guys were big. And these guys were strong, right? Because when you brought up on a farm, compared to bailing hay or moving a cow or a bull that doesn't want to be moved, lifting a bar off the floor is really easy because the bar's not trying to kick you. And But what she also noticed was even when they stopped training, they didn't get smaller. And the question became, right, puberty is this natural steroid cycle. And it seems like individuals, males who train very heavily and get big, then it's almost permanent. It's very different than when you're older because there's probably the hormonal profile, the the physiology is very plastic and that what you expose it to, whatever. We can get down the rabbit hole of epigenetics and all this other stuff nobody cares about. But there, and it makes me wonder if we looked at women that got in the weight room when they were 15, as opposed to in their 20s if we would see a difference in the physiology. And I hope somebody will, as we are doing more female research, I hope we'll see that because I think it would be really instructive. I think I think if you sample some of the top CrossFitters, the top female CrossFitters yeah. in the world right now, even when you interview them, they all talk about, oh, I was in gymnastics when I was oh, 13 yeah. or 14, or I was you know, doing this competitive sport when I was 13, 14. So I think there's a lot of, uh, yeah. A lot, a lot of credence there to what you're saying. But you did mention, you mentioned a study where they looked at the muscle fiber types of Olympic weightlifters and they noticed a greater proportion of type two fibers, right? Uh, yes. Did they also look at the size of the fibers there? Let me see. Uh, so the paper has the fascinating title of Extraordinary Fast Twitch Fiber Abundance in Elite Weightlifters. And there's like 14 okay. authors. Um, let's see. Uh, 
mainly talking about percentages. Let me see if size appears anywhere in here. That wasn't that wasn't the paper that Andy Galpin is on, is it? That is exactly the paper Andy Galpin is on. That's how I found it so quickly. Okay. Um, uh, cross-sectional area. For Paul and Cam that probably don't know, they took muscle fiber samples from weightlifters who were lifting at the, I believe it was the Houston World Championships. So okay. they took samples from the best. Yeah, this is, I mean, these were world Olympic and national caliber athletes. Like these were participant accolades included three Olympic games, 19 world championships, 25 national records, 170 national international medals, uh, blah, blah, blah. Finding was that these athletes displayed the highest pure two-way concentrations ever reported um, with world champion females expressing 71% of type two fibers, uh, blah, blah, blah. Heavyweights accounted for 91% of the, the okay. Ba, ba, ba. And, and his conclusion, I know this is something that he's kind of been thumping the drum on, is these results collectively suggest that athlete caliber and or years competing in the sport determine fast twitch fiber percentage more than sex, right? Because the men and the women were not only similar, but some of the women had a little bit higher. That's a tough one. Right. There's been this longstanding debate of how much can you shift fiber type percentage. You may have seen there's another twin study he did. Twins, one ran for his entire life and had like 90 percent type one fibers versus the untrained twin. It's hard to say. There's definitely some conversion going on of these hybrid fiber types. And maybe that's it. Over 12 weeks, maybe we don't. Maybe if you train for 20 solid years you do see these changes based on what kind of training that you do, which is both interesting and irrelevant in the big picture because it's going to happen if it happens. It's not going to happen if it doesn't happen. And realistically, if you didn't, because again, the way this study would have been ideal is, oh, we just happened to test the right people 20 years earlier and knew what their fiber type, but you can't do that study. The Germans probably did that study. You can't do, we can't do that study because we can't identify ahead of time who's going to reach the uh, the top because we don't at the end of it all you know is that this is what where did they start was it genetic maybe the women started at 70 and ended at 70 we don't know because generally if you're not good at something you quit unless you're me and i doing ice speed skating in which case you stick with it for five and a half years in a miserable sport that you're no good at but that's just me um but most most elite athletes were good from an early age Biology, environment, both, don't know. But I know he's done a lot of really interesting work on that. I have a thought, and maybe I haven't thought about this enough, so it'll sound dumb. But I'm sort of thinking, like, with female athletes, too, I think they have a little more, like, wiggle room in terms of PED use because they don't have to uh, worry about crashing their uh, sure their androgens and it being crashed for so long. And plus, some of their choices um are their their ped choices like are already decent choices for getting around drug tests sure yeah 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 and that's the even then you know start looking at elite athletes in any level and it's like i mean even with the crossfit example crossfit has a huge drug culture huge when oh, everyone's yeah. like, oh, yeah, Froning's like 240 and ripped, like, oh, yeah, that's CrossFit. Sure. At Glassman said it was, <laughs> yeah, Glassman said it was better than bodybuilding for gaining muscle. So, oh, yeah, that's just totally because he because he smashed 
Ruth or whatever they talk about. So, so yeah, that, you know, this, and this is always a huge confound when you look at elite athletes. Um, like I said, when I see these, you know, they're like, oh yeah, we found a female outlaw. And you know what the data looks like, it's like, ah, here's most females. And then boom, we've got this one. And then they conclude this may represent the upper limit of, well, yeah, it might, but on average, 98% of people aren't going to get close to that. And I'm sure she was probably 6'2", you know, usually athletes in those types of sports are not small. Um, even that's becoming, they've sort of brought that up. And I brought that up in my series several years ago, which is all lean body mass is not muscle, right? Glycogen, water, connective tissue, minerals, even fat has 10 to 15% lean body mass. And another paper, again, by Abe, I think, basically was like, yeah, we found that fat cell, so when you gain, you know, when you're up at 30% body fat, some of that LBM, is, it's not, and that's not, this whole fat-free mass index debate, and for people not familiar with it, the idea is that there's an upper limit of muscle mass. And originally it was nobody can get past without drugs. It's like, no, some people can get past it without drugs. And we found about 15 of them over like, you know, but realistically, you're not one of them, right? Realistically, unless you were born at 22, you're not that person that's going to get past it. But it's like, okay, we look at these big football athletes who are 35% body fat and they have all this lean body mass. It's like, right, diet them down to 12%. And then let me know what happens. Because by the time they lose glycogen, water, connective tissue, the roughly 10 to 15 pounds of lean body mass in their fat cells, they're going to end up even, sumo wrestlers are what, 50% body fat? Yeah, I'm sure they top out at 120 kilos, 250 pounds of muscle mass. Diet them down and let me see what happens. Oh, although, this, Yeah, although this also led, right? So we know that when you gain weight, you gain about one-third lean body mass regardless. Back in the day, we decided that to win the Olympia, should eat till you hit 900 pounds, <laughs> should have 300 pounds of lean body mass, and then diet back down to contest shape. It doesn't work that way, but we had a lot of time on our hands. Early internet days, there were only like six websites. It, no, I'm like not joking. Nobody knew what to do with this stuff. So there were like six websites, and you could visit them all in a day. It was great. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that sort of answers that that maximum muscle, muscular potential or if we even really got to the. Hopefully we got to the question eventually. I think we did. I think we, okay. I think we knocked that one 